You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now... Here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. It's Friday. Woo! That's my best Ric Flair impression, in case you didn't know. Hopefully everybody is having a great day, because I know I am, because it's Friday. Here is a podcast today that I recorded, oh, about a week and a half ago. Uh, And it's with a gentleman named... Dan Bourne, and Dan is going to talk with us today about a life-changing uh, trip he took when he was younger out west. Uh, he's going to talk about some lessons that he has learned as a bow hunter throughout his life, uh, and he is going to talk about uh, an organization, the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers organization that he is very passionate about um, and that he uh, is involved in. Uh, so this is a, an awesome podcast uh, that I think you guys are going to like. If I mean, it looks like you guys, um, I haven't got a lot of hate mail, so so I think you guys are liking the content that's being put out. Hopefully you are. Again, if you're not, email me with some requests. I am open for all emails. Um, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Just got done shooting my my gear head today, right? So I I let me just set the stage for you. Typically I come home and the kids are here, but today the kids are at daycare. So tonight I record a podcast. Typically I record a podcast at 3 p.m. So right after work. Now here's what happens. So the stars aligned. I get home. And I really don't have anything to do. I mean, I could clean the kitchen, I could clean the living room, but that just seems like some boring-ass shit, and I don't want to do that. So, picked up the bow, he- headed out back, and... I don't know. I shot... <laughs> I was looking at spreadsheets all day, and I get kind of bummed when I have to do that. Uh, and archery is very therapeutic, I realized. Um, you just go through your steps... And you pull the trigger. You, you do that three. I have three arrows that I shoot out of my quiver. I shoot three arrows and I walk down range, pick them up, and start the process over again. And it, it's very therapeutic. It, it helps me clear my head. It helps me get in the right state of mind. You know, it, it actually helps me separate work from family life really well. And it's something that I, I want to continue to do more of. I know I've said that a lot of times, but uh, I, I 
I want to dive deep into archery just like I've uh, jumped into uh, bow hunting. So, and they definitely go hand in hand with each other. So, uh, got the gearhead out, started shooting it today. Uh, again, guys, if you haven't had the opportunity to shoot a gearhead, I'm telling you, it is the real deal. I know it looks funky and it has a shorter, shorter axle to axle, but it is dead to rights in the hand. Um, and I actually got off the phone, had a couple conversations with Skip from Gearhead today, uh, just brainstorming about how I can help the company and whatnot because I really do love their product. And uh, he's just says, keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I, so I felt the need to uh, uh, express that here today. Awesome company, awesome people. And that goes with every uh, uh, brand that is represented with this podcast. Each and every one of them is a group of good people. Uh, and I, that is definitely something I like to surround myself with. Each and every uh, company that uh, is a partner on this podcast has awesome people that work for it. Um, and that's definitely very easy to, to work with. Now, I don't even know who the commercial is supposed to be today. I'm looking at a piece of paper that I keep track on, and it looks like it is going to be Deer Lab. Okay, Deer Lab, yes. So, really quick, Deer Lab, they just came out with some kick-ass new technology uh, and you upload your trail camera pictures right and it has image recognition on it so what that means is it can tell if there is a deer it can you can put labels to objects like grass or tree or a stick um, turkey hog deer things like that and uh, definitely something to go check out. Uh, this this will save you from having to flip through each and every picture. If you're talking about 10,000 pictures um, and you run into about 100, 200 images of, uh, let's say, grass blowing in the wind, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so please... Go check out Deer Lab. Uh, read up on this new technology, this image recognition that they have. It's pretty badass. Uh, and if you decide, well, I don't decide, you should, uh, especially this time of year as the season gets closer. If you haven't already tried out the free 30-day trial period, you need to do it right now. And that is DeerLab.com slash Nine Fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers, and uh, you sign up through there. There's no charge. They don't ask for your credit card, and you can get a free 30-day uh, membership to Deer Lab uh, to test it out, enter all of your uh, old trail camera pictures, and it will help you potentially uh, track down a buck that uh, maybe you've you've overlooked or you need to put some pieces of the puzzle together to find a, a location or an annual uh, route that he takes through your property. Uh, definitely something I've uh, enjoyed getting into, and I think you you guys would like it too. Now, enough of all this whoring out. Jesus. <sighs> I'm glad tomorrow's Friday or Saturday. I'm, I'm so pumped. Uh, oh, I forgot to tell you, this week, this weekend, I've got permission from the wife to go do my my big trail camera switch and that is when I go and take my trail cameras off of mineral stations and put them in pinch points, fence crossings, inside corners, travel corridors, maybe some field edges and stuff like that, heavy trails. Uh, so that's what I'll be doing today. I'm excited to do, to do that and that's it. Now we can get into today's podcast with Mr. Dan Bourne. Enjoy. 
All right, everybody, welcome back. On the phone with me today is Mr. Dan Bourne from Minnesota. How are we doing today, Dan? Oh, very good, very good. Thanks for having me on. So I got a quick question for you. How pumped are you for this upcoming hunting season? Right now, uh, I would say getting close to 10, but uh, probably at 8. As as it comes closer in the next few weeks, I start getting those final uh, trail cam photos in before opening. I'll be be pretty uh, raring to go. Nice. So Minnesota opens in September. Because of that, are you able to catch some deer still on like a late summer food to bed pattern before, you know, they get, uh, you know, there's that kind of switch somewhere in, in mid to late September, early October, where, you know, certain food sources dry up and they, and they shift once they, you know, go hard horn. And then there's like a week where they're still on that. Uh, are you ever able to catch some of those bigger deer on the hoof in daylight during that, you know, that first week of that September season? Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite ways to hunt. I really love hunting early season. And, uh, you know, I know some people don't think you should hunt mornings, but I also really like hunting mornings early season. Um, in fact, the, uh, oh boy, two or three years ago when I, I really started getting into archery and shot my my first, I would say, good archery, like my first archery buck, period. Uh, that was a deer that I'd seen just a couple weeks earlier, still in velvet. I uh, snuck in, um, just after sunup, after the deer had kind of cleared our CRP field and uh, managed to put, I think I saw three or four kind of a loose bachelor group of bucks come into the woods and put an arrow through him at, on, I think, like an hour into opening morning. Oh, nice. I do like hunting that, I do like hunting that early season. It is, it's a different type. I don't know if you want to call it patterning, but it's a different type of, you look at the landscape a little differently and you think about deer a little differently than you do later on. Right. Do you ever run into deer that are still in velvet? I haven't yet. No, not, um, we usually go, uh, um, we usually go out around, yeah, September 19th. And by that time, uh, I haven't seen one in velvet yet, but, gotcha. uh, yeah. Gotcha. So before we get into this podcast, why don't you, uh, tell everybody, what do you do for a living and what part of Minnesota are you uh, from? Uh, well, I am from uh, southern Minnesota, near Mankato. Uh, what I do for a living, I currently work for uh, Polaris Industries, uh, which does, um, we, you know, we sell and make side-by-side ATVs. So that's what I do for a living right now. I, I do work for the corporate office up in Minneapolis. Uh, prior to that, I, was, uh, I spent a bunch of time out west doing uh, work for the U.S. Forest Service for a few years. Nice. So what do you, like, what's your job title at Polaris? I'm in a dealer services. I do a lot of coordination with dealers uh, on, yeah, like warranty cases and working with customers and and kind of coordinating some of that work. So if a a dealer has an issue, they give you a call? Yes, a dealer or a customer. Yeah, we just kind of do a lot of logistics between, between the two. Gotcha. Now, it's been a while, but I ended up uh, interviewing somebody else from Minnesota. Well, this was like maybe two or three months ago. And he said that he he hunts around the Twin Cities within, an, I think, within 30 minutes or an hour. And he, he ended up 
getting able to, you know, he got uh, harvested a real good buck. Do you hunt in that area? Um, Because I would assume it's pretty highly pressured if you're, you know, an hour from the Twin Cities in any direction. Yeah, it's, um, it it is pretty, that is the area I hunt in. I hunt about an hour south of uh, the Twin Cities is where my family place is. Uh, And private land is, in my area, I don't feel like there's a lot of archery pressure, uh, which is another reason I like hunting uh, early season, because once uh, shotgun season kicks off in uh, the first week in November, uh, then it's just hunters everywhere. It's like the Orange Army everywhere, you know, public land and private land. So another reason I really dig on kind of hoping to fill my tag before November 5th is my goal. Right. I got you. Now, so you you drive away, you, you drive uh, to your family farm whenever the hunt when every weekend. I mean, or, I mean, you got a wife and kid, right? Yeah, I've got a I've got a wife and three kids. Three kids. Um, yeah, I might, I might uh, be asking uh, you uh, parenting advice by the end of the day because I got uh, my third kid coming at the end of the next month, so. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, the third one adds a whole different, um, it's a whole different situation when you have three. Uh, really, the only advice I can give is, it sounds like you've already done it, is just, you know, marry a good woman, because my wife gives me a lot of leeway in terms yeah. of uh, hunting time. Yeah, I uh, I hope I hope that number three doesn't change too much, you know. You know, when it comes, I'll put it this way, like, my my wife still bitches a little bit, but rightfully so, right? She has to watch. She's going to be watching three kids while I go and have fun, basically, right? So she's going to be stuck home with three kids. My daughter never listens to the, anything the first time. My son is in his terrible twos, and then you throw an infant on top of that for the hunting season. Um, I can understand where sh- she might have some short patience. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, they, we do, you know, ask a lot of our significant others when we, uh, once hunting season comes around, that's for sure. Uh, you know, the cool thing is looking forward to, uh, in the years forward when, you know, our kids can start doing the stuff with us, which is always a great thing to think about. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how old are your kids? Uh, Gracie is seven. She just turned seven. Uh, Jack is four and Luke is two. Okay. Nice. Nice. All right. So, so you go down to your, uh, family farm. It's on 300 acres. Uh, is that mostly ag or is it a, uh, is it, I mean, is it an agricultural farm livestock or is it just big chunk of timber? It's a, it's mixed agriculture. Uh, the whole area is kind of, it's really rich kind of river bottom land uh, yeah. in Minnesota. So there's a lot, of, it's mostly corn, soybeans. Our farm is split between about a hundred acres of egg, 50 acres of CRP and about a hundred acres of, of timber nice. uh, split between some kind of Oak river bluffs. And then the river bottom is, you know, your standard mix of like cottonwoods and alum and ash and maple and stuff. Nice. Nice. All right. So, you go down to your farm. I mean, is that has that farm been in your family your entire life? I mean, is that where you grew up hunting? Yeah, I mean, it is, it's actually been in the family since 1888 is when uh, uh, we, I think we got, we must have got it shortly after coming over from Germany. Um, 
And so I think we just celebrated like 130 some years on the farm, uh, on our family, on this one piece of property. My, you know, the, the house that my grandfather was born in is we still own. And my, my family lives in it. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's where we all grew up and, uh, deer hunting now is kind of the way I used to shotgun season is the kind of the way everyone gets together and it becomes as much as a fa- of a family kind of event. Uh, right. but yeah, I grew up down there, uh, hunting when I was, you know, I remember really, really young, just going out there as a kid and before I was 10 and seeing, you know, deer hanging from a, a buck pole or deer hanging from a tractor, uh, shot scoop and just, uh, wait can't couldn't couldn't wait to go to through the training right. and hunt myself so we've been nice. doing it since, since i was since i was a kid for sure nice so is that i i think minnesota has somewhat of the same tradition as wisconsin does and and maybe some of the other like michigan and pennsylvania where it's a, like a majority of the hunters are focus on that, uh, that shotgun and, or that gun season. And the traditions come out when, uh, you know, the uncles, the cousins, everybody comes into town. Uh, you know, they sit for, they sit in the, the box blinds or in the tree stands for the morning. They come back, they eat breakfast, you know, maybe take a nap, go back out in the evenings, have a couple beers at night and then, and do it for a week or so. Uh, is that kind of how you remember it or was your, was your gun season or your introduction a little different than that? No, that's exactly how I remember it. Uh, we used to, uh, it's, yeah, it's very much so. There's, it gets pretty busy during shotgun season. There's, there might be, you know, nine or 10 guys hunting over the 300 acres, which, you know, essentially means it's kind of like, well, I've been sitting in this deer stand for 25 years, so I'll just keep sitting here. You know, everyone kind of has their spots. Uh, another reason I got into bow hunting, no one else archery hunts our place, so. I'm wide open for a few months beforehand, but yeah, that nice. family tradition is was very much alive. It is very much alive at our place for sure. Right. So when, I mean, a lot of people get into archery because, you know, they grew up gun hunting and it's something different. Um, I kind of had a different path into archery. Like I didn't ever gun hunt first. Like I've always been archery first. Um, I, I, I gun hunted, but a lot of people gun hunt or uh, stop gun hunting or not necessarily stop gun hunting, but get into archery because of what you just said. And that is, there's so many people during shotgun season. I wanted to see what archery was like to either like to be alone or do something different. How and why did you get into archery? Well, uh, you know, yeah, growing up on the farm, it was all about shotgun hunting. Uh, in our unit specifically, you can only tag one deer across all seasons. So whether you hunt uh, muzzleloader or archery and shotgun or a combination of both, you're only allowed one deer, period. Okay. So one most people just stuck to shotgun. Buck and doe? So one deer total? No, no, one, one deer total. And that's in uh, your area now still, one deer total for one hunter every year. I was in the majority of Minnesota, uh, south of kind of what we consider the north, um, but definitely in the southwest part of the state. It's uh, by and large a one deer uh, only, and oftentimes doe by lottery only during the gun season. Archery season, I have a choice between a you can take a buck or a doe, but uh, um, gun season is almost always lottery for doe, which 
I have some mixed feelings on, but, um, yeah. yeah so everyone tends to focus on shotgun. Uh, I throughout my twenties was barely around my home state. So right. I'd come home for shotgun, but that was about it. That four or five days of deer hunting was kind of like my hunting for the year. Okay. When my family settled back in Minnesota and I was in a job that didn't require me to travel, all of a sudden I have like a family of kids and we've got this great farm and uh, I just wanted more time in the woods uh, with my family and, and as a hunter. And so I took up archery and immediately just, you know, you, you hunt, if you're hunting with in the shotgun season, you learn a lot, but you don't really learn. I don't think until you pick up a bow and really spend some time in the woods with unpressured deer. And right. it, it just felt like such a cool experience. And, it's one that I really look forward to every year. I love the family stuff. That's kind of like is my end of the year kind of celebration, shotgun hunting with my friends and family. But that time I spend in the tree stand by myself for the first two months really uh, has taught me a lot and means a lot. Right. Absolutely. Now, I take it the farm that you hunt is similar to the farm that I hunt, right? Uh, and here's let me tell you, let me fill you in on how my season goes so from you know i'd say somewhere somewhere around april uh the deer start moving back into my farm uh once the crops start growing everything starts getting green they have a food source now um they start moving in up until the summer Uh, a lot of the deer or i shouldn't say a lot of them but a majority of them are there until somewhere around September, then there's a switch that happens, uh, like we discussed early on, and there's a dispersion of the of some of the bucks. Uh, you know, only a handful of them stick around, and they will stick around the entire season until the shotgun season happens. And it's a completely different property after shotgun season, after guys are driving it, you know, three days, four days in a row. Um, it is that is that kind of what happens to yours? And then basically it's a waste to hunt late season or do deer kind of funnel back into your property? Oh man, I, I am really learning that to be the case in our place as well. Since I started uh, archery hunting, it's, um, you know, you get, we, we get, we always have a good, I would say population of, uh, you know, two and a half, three and a half year old deer that we start to see immediately once we start running cameras and whatnot. But, uh, and then, yeah, some come, some go. Once shotgun season hits, which does, in our neck of the woods, come along right about the same time as the rut, it's, you see a lot of, you see, we see a lot of deer movement during the shotgun season, um, but it's really, you know, I mean, you get, you get a six or an eight point or hopefully something better walking in front of you during the shotgun season. It might be the only buck you see uh, for the whole week just because they're getting moved around so much. Right. And then after the shotgun season, I, it's been amazing, like, almost heartbreaking looking at my trail camera photos before and after because those those deer uh and i wouldn't say even mature does to some extent they just go to ground like they just disappear uh the neighboring the neighboring property which is about the same size as ours converted all their cropland over to crp about 20 years ago and it's just this thick nasty awesome deer holding you know mess and i'm sure they just bury up in there uh once once shotgun season hits gotcha so as 
you know, you, you kind of transitioned into archery and the farm was yours. How old were you when you, you made that switch to archery and, you know, what was, what was the first season as an archery hunter like for you on that farm when you had it all to yourself? I started, uh, I picked up a bow when I was, um, oh man, 30, maybe 31. Okay. I'm 37 now. Okay. Uh, and then I didn't, I didn't get out hunting until the following season. Uh, I moved back to my hometown from, uh, from, I was living out in Spearfish, South Dakota at the time. And I moved back. I borrowed my dad's, uh, compound bow. Now, when I took that bow into an archery shop to see if it would see it, to have him tune it, it looked to me like I was crazy because it was, it, it must've been at least a 25 to 30 year old compound, you know, wood limbs, uh, they're like, well, you know, it's got the wood looks good. It's, it's got steel cables and we can't tell you how good a shape those are in, but <laughs> we can't tell you it's not safe, but we also probably can't tell you that it is safe. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was his old compound bowl that he had when I was a kid. So I know it was at least 25 years old. Right. Um, and, uh, an old PSE, I think. And so I, t- I took that out, uh, did a bunch of target shooting, uh, got on the stand and, uh, you know, kind of hunted in a lot of the same ways I hunt during shock season. So I was really learning, uh, archery on my own. And it was fortunate that, um, I think it was Halloween weekend because that was a good time to be in the woods. I had, uh, so all year long, I've been, I've been, I hadn't seen a, anything with antlers, but I've been seeing a lot of does with fawns and kind of like, you know, going back and forth on, whether I, I, I wanted to shoot a doe with fawns, I, I know they're pro- the fawns are probably going to be okay, but you know how it is. Uh, and uh, finally during Halloween, I'm like, all right, so after this weekend, it's shotgun season, and then it's, it's, it's basically over. So if I see a doe uh, or a buck, you know, I'm, I'm, and it's, I feel like I can take a good shot, I'm going to take it. And that, that night, sure enough, I, I, hear this, I see this doe coming down. Uh, she was, I was sitting by, uh, down by the river, uh, near a pond of ours and, and this doe was heading north and uh, I kind of rotated, you know, in the tree stand with her as, as she, as she moved and I'm getting ready to draw back. I'm like, great. There's no fawn there. I'm getting ready to draw back. I'm, I'm going to shoot this doe and have my first archery kill, put some meat in the freezer. And then I started to hear like, you know, steps uh, behind her. And I was like, Oh man, she's got a fawn with her, but you know what? I, I'm, this is it. I have a shot. I'm taking it. So I, 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 uh, shot her, shot her at maybe 20 yards, 25 yards. And she was fortunate. I was really, I was concerned about this. My first archery shot, she, uh, didn't walk more than 20 yards lay down as if she was bedding down and just expired right there. Yeah. Uh, it was a little bit of a, a shot it was a little bit back kind of hit liver and lung. Um, and so, you know, she, she expired and, and I heard the footsteps still coming and I look and it wasn't a fawn behind her. It was a really nice eight point buck. That was hot on her tails. Man, that was a gorgeous buck. Um, and, uh, so I shot the doe. Did, I didn't, I didn't got get the buck cause I only had one tag. Right. So, right. um, uh, my dad and my dad ended up taking him that shotgun season, he, uh, just a week later, but, so all I could do is sit and watch this, this really nice buck 25 yards away from me, stomp his foot and snort and kind of almost nudge the doe like, Hey, stand back up. What are you doing here? Um, and then I just kind of watched him walk away, but it was a great season. 
it got me hooked and right. that dough was, was, I couldn't have asked for a better, uh, a, a better, I think first archery kill for myself. Right. So after all those years of gun hunting with the family and tradition, and then you go out on that inaugural uh, season of archery and you were successful with, with a doe and you had that encounter with that buck who, you know, just a really cool encounter. Did that change things for you at that point? I mean, a lot of guys tend to jump in at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, and I, after I, sh- I shot that doe, I remember just shaking like you would shooting a, a, a <laughs> you know, a big buck. And I was like, this is, I really like this. I mean, it just felt like a totally different experience. Um, I'll always be out there with my shotgun, but there's no way I'm not going to be in the, the deer woods first with the bow. I, I'm, I'm hooked on it. Um, and then the following year, which to only kind of cement that is uh, I shot um, an eight point, which is my first was my first archery buck and a very distinct looking buck that I've been seen for like the, the been track. I've been seen on camera for about a year and a half. Right. Uh, with these kind of the kid, he's large. He had a notch in his ear. So it's easy to spot and he, his front tines kind of fish, fish hooked straight up, which was, was pretty easy to, to see. And, and I, I shot him the following year on a great, uh, with a great encounter. He was with a bunch of, uh, he was a three or four other loosely knit bucks in a bachelor group opening weekend again. I, and, uh, I think it was like an hour and a half into my first sit and I shot him the following year. And that really, I was all in at that point. Right. And then, I mean, when, when people get hooked on something, they love it, you know, especially bow hunting, you start to love it, right? And you're passionate about it, but, but then your mind tells you, I need to do more. I need to get better at certain things if I want to be successful. Like a lot of times guys in, in your situation will start reading books or, you know, they'll, they'll realize after a season or two that, Hey, I want to, I want to shoot either big bucks or I want to shoot mature bucks or I want to shoot more deer. And I can't do that if I'm sitting on a field edge in the same stand every day of the entire season. So in these last, I mean, and I'll put you in the category of a late bloomer so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm, I mean, you're, thir- sure. you're 31. Hell, I just did an interview. It, it hadn't launched yet of uh, a gentleman who was in his forties before he started bow hunting and he killed his first deer. Um, so what have you done in the last, you know, handful of years since you started? I mean, 31, so you're 37 now. So six years, what have you done in the last six years to really improve your game up your game? Uh, try to get better at bow hunting. Oh, oh boy. A lot of things. Um, from, from just a kind of a, a proficiency perspective. Well, first of all, I, I did end up putting down my dad's, you know, ancient compound. I bought a little, a little bit more modern gear. Uh, <laughs> so I'm currently shooting a Bowtech. Um, I got a lot of range time to do all that kind of stuff. I try to start shooting, uh, really getting much more aggressive in my shooting around, uh, June. Right. Uh, I'm, uh, but you know, yeah, reading. I'm, I've always been a voracious reader, so I picked up a lot of books, uh, followed a lot of podcasts, just you know, read. It, you know, it's amazing. Like growing up pre-internet, 
right. it was like a trip to a trip to the library was the best you could hope for. But now it's just there's just all these resources at the hunter's fingertips to to make leaps and bounds in what used to take a lot longer, I think, the learning curve. Did you ever read uh, like Outdoor Life or Field and Stream when you were a kid? You know, I, I think about that. And my dad, uh, who got me into hunting, my dad, my grandpa's and stuff, he was much more of a, a rifleman. He's a machinist by trade. So he read, a, we had a lot of magazines on, on rifles, uh, not as much on kind of hunting magazines like Field and Stream or Outdoor Life. Um, but yeah, we did. And I, I definitely fell into growing up, reading a lot of books and spending a lot of time just walking around the woods, kind of the, all those old, you know, all those old great stories of adventure and hunting, like yeah. the leather stocking tales, you know, uh, James Fenimore Cooper, uh, last Mohicans, that kind of stuff. But I was kind of kept a fire lit, kind of the romantic notion of the, of the hunter. Right. So um, but, I can, I can remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, getting a hold of some of those uh, those articles that had the maps in them, and it was like, okay, a deer's bed is here, and it had a little map of a deer laying down, and then like some trees, and you know, I look back at it now, and I'm like, those really didn't help me at all, except for the fact of the, my wind, like where my wind goes. Uh, like mm-hmm. they, they always had arrow and a scent, like a, a stream. So if the yep. wind's coming this way, you want to kind of be here, uh, because you know, it's hard to tell your properties, you know, your property doesn't match my property. My property didn't match what they were describing in, in the magazine article. But what it did do is it made me think about principles that I needed to, you know, like for example, wind. All right. Well, the wind is very important and everybody talked about it back then. So did you, I mean, when you were 31 and you were a late, you know, you're considered, I'm considering you a late bloomer, an 18 year old kid, in my opinion, won't stop to smell the roses, so to speak, right? The the cannonball Uh in, they're going to go hard from day one. You know, they think they know everything, that kind of shit. And then, you know, guys closer to our age, we, you know, we've been through there. We've had the mistakes. We've learned. You didn't learn that, but I would consider you mature. So, did do you feel that your your learning curve what is has been shortened because you're more patient as an, an as an adult, or are you still find yourself making uh, quote unquote rookie mistakes? Yeah, it's a, it's a I think it's a mix. Uh, I definitely. I know there's a lot, you know, there's, there's so many things out there, you know, you're checking your wind, you're checking temperature drops, checking, uh, right. you know, you know, moon phases, everything. I, I'm, I really pay attention to the wind. I think like every, every archery guy does or should. Um, and I really, one of the best things I've ever learned, I think, I, you know, I, I think it was from Jeff Sturgis. Uh, I mean, he's not the first one to bring it up, but uh, was following those cold fronts aggressively. Right. So where, and I, as you mentioned before, like, I know, like you want to throw yourself all in and learn more and more. My first couple seasons, I was in the woods every single chance I got, you know, maybe not taking the best stand sites, but just in the woods all the time. And, and now I definitely being having a family and having less time. I try to focus my energy on those on cold fronts and then setting up a stand location based off of the wind, even if 
kind of like I might want to go sit in this spot because I've been I know I've been seeing out this you know a, a really nice spot or I've been seeing a bunch of deer in that spot but if the wind isn't right I try to you know say well save it save that sand save save that sit and go sit on the periphery or sit somewhere else that's more conducive to to that day that patience has been the time I was never much of a patient child and I suppose <laughs> some people would call me an impatient adult but I try to be patient during deer, during deer season right absolutely that's funny. Um, so in the, in the last seven years, I mean, you gave us two examples of how, how you've been successful. Um, what has been the biggest change for you? I mean, ha- have you ever went through a season of eating tag soup? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, well, for sure. It's been a couple of years, uh, but I, I tend to get you know, I, I tend, I have a, I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate in that I, that my family uh, has property that I can hunt. And I'm fortunate that I live in a family of hunters. So we, during shotgun season, we definitely share the wealth. The meat gets distributed between, uh, you know, kind of sub parties or between the party. Uh, I've been lucky. I haven't had, I haven't not had deer meat in my freezer for, I honestly can't remember when last time I didn't have deer meat in the freezer. So, but I've eaten tag soup uh, archery plenty of times. I think, you know, I've been hunting, I've been hunting for archery now for six or seven years and I've filled three tags with a bow, uh, two does and a buck. Uh, so yeah, I'm, you know, but luckily it's gun seasons. I was right around the corner. So, right. Absolutely. So when it comes to bow hunting and we, you know, we discussed of how you, how you've learned things, what, what are some of the, the biggest turning points for you as an archer, whether it was, learning from a failed experience, let's say you got busted or maybe you rattled when you shouldn't have rattled or, or, um, you made a mistake. So what was one of your biggest learning experiences in the last six years as, as a bow hunter? Well, um, you know, I've learned that even on a property that, that you think you're so familiar with, right. Uh, mm-hmm. A chunk of land that I grew up on, there's those spots that no one hunts and, those are spots you should look at. I'm, I've, I've been focusing on a couple of those areas the last couple of years. Um, also, uh, you know, in a perfect, on a perfect property, you'd have access roads along the borders and you'd always be, you'd never be disturbing the center on our property. You kind of have to approach from the center and move towards the boundaries, which is not, you know, ideal. Right. I've, I've learned some mornings. I'm a big morning hunter. I like to hunt in the mornings. I've learned to just wait, wait until sunup, uh, watch those deer leave our CRP fields, which I have to get across to get to some of my stand sets and uh, just be patient and then sneak in there as, 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 uh, as quietly and as quickly as possible. Uh, so that's been a lesson. Um, the ongoing lesson of patience, which hunting definitely teaches is always good. Uh, boy. You were an all day sitter. You know, growing up, I absolutely was. It was like, that was the rule. Like you, I mean, my first couple of years, you know, it's November. My dad walked me out to my tree stand and I was there until sundown when he come and got me. Uh, since then, I, I, I do still do all day sits, not nearly as often. Um, but I do uh, during shotgun season, especially I'll do all day sits and leading up, you know, that, like I said, that Halloween weekend is my, I think a lot of guys love that weekend for good reason. I'll do all day sits during that time too. Right. Right. Makes sense. I, I wish like this year I'm going to have to, because of limited time, if I want to get, uh, 
as much time in the stand as possible. I'm going to have to sit all day. At the same time, I am going to have to, uh, like, I don't know. For me, even the thought of sitting all day is disturbing. But, you know, with with that Deer Lab software that I use and and putting all that information in there Mm -hmm. and it, it telling me, dude, you got, you got midday movement on your farm in these pinch points. You have to sit all day long because there's deer coming through there every hour of the day. And it, it pisses me off a little bit because I'm wrong, right? I was wrong. I was wrong to get out of the timber so many years in the past. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and now I basically something proved me wrong. And now I have to change the way I hunt in order to, you know, have more opportunities for myself. So that kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it sure is nice to look forward to like coming out of the stand at like, you know, 11 or 12 or whenever yeah. and for a couple hours and going back out. But, uh, yeah, you know, hunting those pinch points. One of my favorite new spots on our property is, uh, is, a just a super pinch point between in a woods that borders uh, an egg field on a ridge. And, uh, yeah, there is just deer moving back and forth, back and forth all day long. Uh, and that's, you know, pre-rut and then the rut kicks in and it's just, you never know what's going to happen, you know? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's see here. I'm going to change the subject on you just a little bit. And my question was, you went out when, when you were at, you know, right after college, you got into the, uh, the forest service the forest services, uh, correct? Yep. Yeah. And you were, you yeah, were a surveyor out there. What did that entail? Well, yeah. So, um, my really the longest time I, for the longest time I spent as part of a unit in the forest service that actually gets uh, farmed out to a different forest to do in, essentially environmental survey work. So you'd, you'd go into like an area where the forest plans to do a timber sale or plans to do a, uh, build a road or something like that. And we would go in and survey the land and look for impacts on the landscape. So how this road might affect the landscape or might affect wildlife. And we'd make suggestions or mitigate any issues so that the the project could go through. Uh, What was cool was that not working for one forest, I got sent. I mean, I might spend, you know, two weeks in Colorado uh, in Breckenridge and then a month in Northern California or a month in Montana or a few weeks here and there. So I got to travel the West, really put boots on the ground in some of the best hunting spots in the country, but never got to do it with a rifle or a bow. I was work. Um, <laughs> it was, it was a really, it was, it was, I mean, we'd be out there uh, during elk season. You have to be careful, obviously, but um, I can, I was in uh, Idaho around uh, Northern Idaho uh, surveying and seeing all these hunters work. I'm like, Oh man, what I wouldn't give to be out elk hunting right now. But yeah, I got to travel around the for about a good chunk of my twenties. Got to travel around the western part of the country, just you know hiking. Essentially, we were paid to to throw a backpack on, hike through the woods, and and you know record what we saw. It was, yeah. it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, now, while you're out there, I take it you you know you're out in the field, jealous of the hunters. But did you get to see a lot of wildlife while you were doing that job? Oh yeah. A lot of encounters. Um, I remember the first time I saw an elk, you know, I'm a Minnesota boy born in, you know, 
spent most of my life here up until my 20s and we were down in, in utah and i think it was the fish lake mountains area fish lake national forest and hiking through this burned or mountaintop that it had burned i remember just like the ash being up to my ankles and then looking up and seeing like four bull elk uh this would have been summer yeah uh just watching these four bull elk move across this mountaintop that was something i'll never forget uh, but yeah we've seen you know we had a a mountain lion run down our survey line. Uh, lot of, seen a lot of bears and mama bears and cubs and no uh, small amount of snakes and just all everything that kind of creeps and crawls out in the woods. We kind of got to bump into once in a while. It was it was really always a really cool experience. So while you were out there bouncing around uh, in the west, you, you didn't get any time to hunt, or did you? I, I didn't get any time to hunt, uh, some of which is my own fault. I think I just didn't, you know, I worked like a lot of guys, uh, a lot of times with the forest service and agencies like that, you work seasonally. Uh, All so, right. you know, you kind of, you work, you know, the, the, I, I made my, the money I made for the year was from May through about November. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, it was working overtime, working as much as I could. And then I was laid off for the winter. I did get a fair amount of, of fishing in. I did some trout fishing here and there. Um, I, I finished my time in the forest service in the black Hills where I, I was just there for a full year and I should have gotten into hunting there. I just didn't uh, yeah. just, you know, whatever, but uh, it was cool. I got, it exposed me to public land for the first time really. Uh, and kind of gave me a, that whole separate appreciation. It was weird. You know, growing up on, on a farm, you kind of make this really weird false assumption that everybody has this kind of access. Right. Uh, which really it's the opposite. So going out and spending all those years in the, in the forest service uh, on the public land was, was a real eye opener. And start, so I started public land hunting as me. Now it's, I don't get to work in the forest service anymore, but now I, I head out West once or twice a year on, on hunts just to get back and kind of get that, get that feeling again. Right. So while you were out there, uh, I take it, you took a mental inventory of some, you know, some of the places that you that you uh, went while you were working. Have you gone back and scouted or hunted any of those places? uh, You know, after you cataloged them saying, Hey, whenever I get the opportunity, I'm going to go back. I'm going to come back here and hunt. Have you done that yet? Well, during the time I definitely was, I mean, more than a mental catalog, I was literally writing down uh, road numbers in my notebook, just so I can remember to, if I were to get back out here, find this road. Cause I saw an elk up this road or I saw a deer or a bear. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I've been applying for four years now to try to get into a, a elk unit near the Bighorn mountains in Wyoming that, that I, that I worked in, uh, haven't drawn yet. Uh, and then, uh, I've, I've gone out to South Dakota or I should say Eastern Wyoming and, and, that's kind of my focus the last couple of years is areas that I'm familiar with that I used to work out of where we do a lot of, we do a pronghorn animal hunting, my dad and I, this will right. be our third year. Uh, I actually got three tags in my pocket for this year. So we'll be heading out there uh, in October. Three, three pronghorn tags. Yeah. The, the unit, um, the unit we hunt out of, uh, it's uh, we hunt solely public land. It's, it's a very easy to draw unit. Um, by Western standards, I would say they list public land as limited, but by eastern whitetail hunter it, it sure seems like i have a lot of public land when you're on a thirty thousand acre chunk you know yeah uh, you don't realize till you get out there where you're like okay i can see why it's small because right. everything's so much more spread out but yeah you know hunting um you can draw a 
we drew up, we each drew a buck tag and then you can, as an out-of-state hunter, you can apply for doe tags. They're like 40 bucks, I think. And you can draw up to two. And I got, I just applied for the, for those doe tags as well. And I drew the, the buck tag and the two doe tags. And, you know, a buck tag isn't cheap. You know, an antelope, it's like 300, around $300, I think right. uh, for out-of-state. But then if you throw on a couple doe tags for 40 bucks, and if you're lucky enough to to fill those tags you can kind of you can bring back a lot of meat and have a, a really good time i would i would encourage anybody from the east i, I if you know by by east i mean eastern woodland whitetail hunters if you want to go out west and are a little bit skittish about it i tell you a wyoming antelope hunt i think is the best way to do it, it it's such such a fun time right now are you going with a bow or a rifle this year uh rifle I haven't, I haven't quite made the jump yet to, to archery hunting uh, for antelope. Uh, that, I think, kicked off uh, right around this week in, in, in a lot of states. Uh, no, going with rifle, boy, I would love to try with a bow. Yeah. Um, but I uh, haven't quite committed to that yet. Right now, it's, it's rifle hunting. You, uh, did, uh, you, did some, uh, you did some combo hunting in Nebraska, right, a year or two ago? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I, up, yeah I ended up missing a uh, antelope buck. I think it was like 40 yards. Um, he did like some kind of, he, he busted me moving and then I laid down flat on the ground. And so, and then he, when he came down, uh, this little low spot, he kind of came up it and he couldn't see me. So what he did was he tried to loop around back to me to catch my scent. So mm-hmm. I could see the tips of his antlers on the slow side or his, uh, his horns on the low side. So then I drew back and as he came up, he saw me, he did this thing where he stopped. He did like a bounce, bounce turnaround. And I, Mm -hmm. I guessed his range and I shot just like, I think my fletchings hit his, uh, right under where his armpit would be. Right. Just slap the bottom of it. Uh, and then I didn't see any mule deer. I didn't see any mule deer bucks, although I did see uh, some really good whitetail bucks uh, up in the sand Hills, but, uh, but yeah, I, I've done that before. I, I'm definitely going back at some point, uh, to that. That's a family farm out there, distant family. Um, but yeah, this year I had to scrap my elk hunt, but next year it all systems go pending anything crazy. Like I've put, I've put it off long enough. Uh, my knees are getting to the point now where I have to do some of these trips now because in 10 years, man, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I'll be able to do it. Yeah, that's, that's the kicker, right? It's like, uh, it's hard to find that perfect window of time where you have the health and the money and the time right. To, right. to go do stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I'm hoping for elk next year too. I, uh, I've liked, I can go, I go, I go out west about once a year. And in the last couple of years, I've been, while my dad's legs, he's about 62, while his legs are still good enough and while he still wants to do it, he is just absolutely falling for animal hunting as well. So we've gone out for three years now, and I'm, I'm, next year we may have to take a break and if I can finally get those elk t- get that elk tag uh, drawn. Yeah, I got three, I got three preference points uh, going into next year. Um, I don't know if I'm going to use them or not, but I got three preference points for elk and three preference points for antelope for Wyoming. Um, so, oh, wow. So we'll see what what I'm gonna do with those, and I just bought a mule deer uh, preference point this year for uh, Wyoming as well. But yeah, dude, I'm just I don't know about there's something about the West that continues to call my name. 
kind of like uh, what's that movie? It's like if you build it, they will come. Uh, the baseball yeah, movie. feel the dream, feel the dream, Iowa, right. Iowa movie. Yeah. yeah. So it's I don't know if that was if that's something you have too, where it's just it calls you. I mean, it, once you've been there, and it was years ago when I the first time I ever went to Colorado was with my dad on the Amtrak from. Uh, our hometown, we took the Amtrak from there to Denver, and then my dad rented a car. We went up into Rocky Mountain National Park, and ever since that day, I just wanted to go back. And then I've been back a couple times, but not, you know, didn't ever do anything other than maybe go up into the mountains. One time, uh, I tried to climb a 14er, and then it, it hailed on us real bad, so I had to hide <laughs> under a rock, and that was fun, but uh, it's almost like in order to get a real appreciation for it, you have to go out there and just spend some time and slow down and really, really appreciate it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a friend who I used to work with out there that was from Wyoming and uh, we were climbing up this mountainside or whatever. And I was struggling, uh, you know, being the flatlander from Minnesota. And absolutely. He's like, you know, buddy, you just got to earn those views. And he was absolutely right. You, you yeah. earn them out there. Uh, but yeah, I, I headed out when I was 25. I had just, I had just gotten back from the service. I did a, a little bit of time overseas uh, with the Minnesota National Guard and was kind of a loss. Didn't know what, what I wanted to do and uh, knew I needed to get out of my hometown and be done with college. And I just packed, I threw a duffel bag of clothes and boots and I think my motorcycle in the back of my pickup and just headed out kind of on a moment's notice and spent about a year out there just living working out of my truck, living in hotels and, uh, just, yeah, I fell in love with it. I try to get out. It's kind of like a, in a lot of the ways, the same way I feel on the weekends and I get down to my family farm, I feel like I'm recharged yeah, going out there once or twice a year is, uh, really recharges me. You know, it's just, it's just amazing. It's, right. Yeah. It's such a cool experience, especially all the, all the, all the land you can just like, go on as a, as just a, as a public landowner, just to go out there and, and, and whether you want to just hike, camp, fish, hunt, it's, it's, it really is something special. Right. Absolutely. So you, you went out there and you were on all this public land, right? And you said it kind of gave you a, an appreciation for the public land that we as citizens of the United States have, right? That, that land, that land belongs to all of us. Everybody has the opportunity to use it. And I, in this little note you sent me, it said you, you're you're an active member of the Minnesota Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, so, did that experience out west kind of get you to join that organization? Yeah, uh, it kind of planted the seeds. So when, when I moved back from from uh, my last kind of post out west was in Spearfish uh, and um, South Dakota and the, and the uh, Black Hills, excuse me. And uh, I came back and I, I was no longer working kind of, you know, all those years working out there, I was kind of working as an ad, not, not an advocate, but I was working as a, you know, as a scientist on public lands for the most part. And, and I missed that kind of advocacy. I'm no longer in that field. So uh, between that, between kind of wanting to stay in touch with that uh, and kind of becoming more and more committed to hunting and, and starting to hunt, hunt uh, you know, in Wyoming and, just kind of paying paying more attention to the landscape uh, of hunting, of how hunting is going uh, in our culture currently. Yeah, it kind of got me involved, and you know, I, this BHA kept on popping up on my radar through watching shows like uh, 
big meat eater, you know, I'm watching Randy, Newber- Randy Newberg's uh, Fresh Tracks show. I'd, I'd run across BJ once in a while and got me curious. And I, I attended a, a local uh, BHA meeting uh, in Minnesota that was about, uh, uh, it was with a, a group called Sportsmen for the Boundary Waters. It's about uh, essentially protecting and advocating for the Boundary Waters uh, in Minnesota, which is, you know, really kind of, yeah, I was in public land, uh, you know, out west, but that, that boundary waters up in northern Minnesota really is one of the jewels of, uh, of access and of public land. Uh, so got involved with them for that. And, you know, it, it really is a group of hunters. I was lucky enough to go out to uh, Missoula for the National Rendezvous this last April. And, I mean, it is just, it really is a group of dedicated hunters from really all walks of life, not just your stereotypical, you know, throw on a backpack head 11 miles back kind of fitness hunters but really everywhere there's lots lots of guys from the, from out east uh michigan is a real strong chapter wisconsin's got a real strong chapter and uh they definitely are focused on they're definitely our hunters focused on public lending keeping public and land in public hands so right it's, it's a cool group I, I really dig being part of that group awesome so you know there's a lot of you know, God, was it yesterday or today? There was a big happening where the Secretary of Interior wrote a report uh, to hand to the president about a lot of these monuments. Is yeah. that accurate? And that there might be some of these monuments might take be taken out of the budget, the federal budget. Yeah, uh, the monument status. Uh, so I think what they're really discussing is whether or not these monuments, which is a, a specific federal designation for, for a specific part of public land, um, as how, if they should remain monuments or not. Uh, and a, a lot of people, I think, equate monuments with national parks, where national parks you really, by and large, can't hunt in. They're very, uh, if you look at national land, public land management, it's, it tends towards preservation, which is like national parks which is kind of like hands off, don't touch and conservation, which is the much broader part of the, part of the uh, uh, strategy, which is like BLM forest service, right. where you've got, you've got logging, you've got mining, you've got hunting, fishing. It's, it's multiple use, which is what it was intended to be. And, and a lot of people realize a lot of these monuments do in fact include, include hunting. And in fact, I could be wrong, but I think out of like the 25 or 26 monuments that are on, uh, the secretary's list, uh, Zinke's list, I think tw- like 23 out of like the 26 or something like that yeah. are open to hunting and fishing. Right. So basically that's taking away it, access from hunters and fishermen. Well, and anybody it, who uses that. It, it could. Yeah. Right. So, so let's say some, one of these, so far the, the, so far the decisions made by uh, the secretary have been, I think mostly, uh, positive, like they haven't said yet. Nope, this not, this isn't going to be a monument anymore. But um, I know hunters and anglers are, are keeping a, a close eye on that. And he's he's from Zinke is from Montana, and by and large, I think it was uh, all things considered a, a decent call uh, for that position for hunters. It's just a matter of making sure that you know making sure that the promises that are given or are held to. Um, because, you know, if, if you think about it, like I think it was the National Shooting Sports Foundation a couple of years ago came out with a study saying the number one reason people don't hunt or are hunting's falling away is lack of access. Yeah. Plain and simple. You know, so um, 
you know, I'm fortunate. You're fortunate. A lot of people are fortunate to be able to hunt private chunks, but not everybody is. And it's, uh, and I get this, I get a different type of enjoyment out of hunting public land than I do in private. I, I value them both, but it is different. It's a different way of looking at the landscape. Right. Um, yeah. and it's just, it's, it's, it, if we want to keep bottom line, if we want to keep hunting around, we have to keep public access around. There's just right. no discussion outside of that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I, number one, I haven't had the opportunity to go and experience the West like I want to, right? I want to make it a point in the second half of my life, uh, in my 40s, you know, late 30s, I mean, mm-hmm. even this next summer uh, after the baby's born, right? I want to make it a point to get out there, experience that, and let my family experience that. And they take that away. I feel you lose something of what America really is. I mean, yeah. the, the history, the like, there is no other place in the world like the American West. And to have that taken away and become private and no trespassing signs all go up, that right there, it just, it puts a, it puts a, a frown on my soul, if that makes sense. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, Roosevelt, you know, President Roosevelt back in, you know, early 1900s saw the wild places of this country as as part of, like you said, the American spirit and compared them to the cathedrals of the old world, right? You know, in Europe, you'll have these, you've had all this cultural history of these great cathedrals and churches and stuff for really thousands of years or you know a thousand years or more hundreds for sure we were a new country we didn't have that but we have these amazing natural cathedrals that deserve to be protected and uh and are inherent to the american spirit so the whole for good i mean it is uh, how can you not talk about the american spirit without talking about just big wild places right adventure man that. Every, and every time, like, not last night, but the night before, I go on Google Maps on my on the iPad after the kids are in bed, and I just kind of zoom in and out of all these different mountains and all these different parts of Colorado and, and Wyoming and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Nebraska and uh, Montana. And just, like, I, I literally have a, a piece of paper that I've started of based off of pictures that I've looked at of places that I want to go uh, and and visit, not only just me, but with my family. And uh, I'm going to be able at some, you know, at some point in my, in my life to be able to go and do that. So I'm excited, uh, to, you know, to take advantage of that. But, the, you know, get, getting back, just the thought of not having that for my kids to someday go and uh take advantage of kind of just freaks me out yeah absolutely it's uh I like you know like you said it, it hurts your soul a bit uh, yeah. the thought of it and it's it is it's part of that american identity and it, it is super special to like last year my, my dad uh who i take we go antelope hunting you know I, i'd worked on the public lands i'd been out there i've had feet on the ground but he'd never really done it before never really hunted never hunted on public land uh for you know big game uh and and you, you walk over a hillside and you see a, a dawn and you see a bunch of 
pronghorns kind of hanging out and your eye eyeballing them. And then behind them is through the mist. You can just see a, a coyote sitting on his haunches on the opposite Canyon, watching the, watching the antelope. You guys are there for the same reason. You want to go after antelope and the antelope are there. And it is, you, it is such a cool thing. To, it's hard to explain. I don't know. I can't put it into words, but those moments, those moments just kind of lined up, line up on, on when you're hunting on public land. You never know when those moments are going to happen or where they're going to happen, which is so cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you're, you're fairly new, uh, mm-hmm. seven, six years into the archery game. Do you have a bucket list? Uh, I mean, do you have uh, any type of goals you want to accomplish as a bow hunter? Personal goals? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Um, this year, my goal is to uh, take my first year with a uh, recurve bow. Uh, oh. I've been shooting recurve. I've been shooting recurve for a few years now. Um, I'm a bit of a procrastinator, so I never feel like I get <laughs> that practice in preseason enough. Right. Um, and I always kind of in the back of my head worry, like, you know, if you take your recurve out there and you see that, that buck of a lifetime at, at 35 yards and you're committed to not shooting less than 30 or not shooting more than 30 or more than 25, uh, you got to let them walk and you got to be, you got to be happy with that. And if you're not okay with that, maybe you shouldn't be out there with a recurve. So, yeah. uh, this year I'm putting a lot more practice in and, and I'd like to, we have, uh, uh, I know you'd mentioned, uh, talking to a, another guy previously from minnesota uh we've actually got a really big chunk of public land big by minnesota standards uh in the metro area in minnesota in near minneapolis and st paul that allows for i think unlimited doe harvest it's a highly high population of deer high population of people and there's this great chunk of about 1500 acres that has uh that has uh really really uh opportunity for for to see some deer. So I'm hoping I can, I can fill a tag there as well. And if I do it with a, uh, curve, that'd be awesome. Awesome. That's pretty cool. Well, Other than, uh, anything else? I mean, and, and then obviously the kids, right? I mean, your, your oldest sounds like they're getting ready to get to the age where they can follow you to the stand. Uh, yeah. Um, it's a constant struggle, uh, with, uh, my wife is unsure if she wants my oldest, which is a girl to go out with me. Uh, but Gracie, tell you what, she, you better not put a, 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 a beef steak in front of her and tell, tell her it's a deer steak because she <laughs> loves deer steak. It's funny, you know, my, my, my wife grew up, uh, uh, she's super supportive of hunting, like lo- just really appreciates the fact that I do it or supports that I do it. She grew up vegetarian, right? So she does not eat red meat still. She eats other, she eats turkey and fish and that stuff. But my kids are absolute carnivores. So, nice. so now that I have three, now that I have three, uh, additional mouths to feed. Uh, one deer doesn't strike stretch as much as it used to. So I've definitely got to get in the field and, and, and put some more meat in the freezer this year. And yeah, I'm super pumped. They love going down to the farm. They love checking trail cameras with me and, you know, riding four wheelers. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited to, to kind of pass that on to them. Like it was passed on to me. Awesome. Well, Mr. Bourne, I tell you what, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, uh, hop on the podcast and ch- BS with us for a little bit. Oh yeah. Thanks for having me, Dan. I really appreciate it. I was, uh, I saw your kind of call out on, on, on Facebook for future guests and thought, well, why the hell not? I'll at least give it a try. And <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a good, it's been great talking to you. And there you have it. 
we're done for this week. Stay tuned for the... Can't even talk right now. And uh, I'm too tired to go back and edit all this out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep talking like that's going to solve the problem. And it just has. So hopefully you guys (laughs) enjoyed that podcast. Thank you guys very much for tuning in this week to all the all the uh, content that's being put out be sure to uh give the land and legacy podcast a listen to i'm going to be flooding this rss feed with um land and legacy podcast only for a short period of time and then the first tuesday after labor day uh you're going to get uh their brand new content so i got to get all their old stuff on first and as soon as i get all that their old stuff in then i'm going to start getting their brand new content and uh then the nine finger chronicles uh podcast feed is the only place you're going to find the land and legacy podcast so good partnership there i say that's what we're going to be doing from uh, here on out so t- two kick-ass pro- podcasts for the price of one uh mine and land and legacy I'm repeating myself. Huge shout out to each and every partner of this podcast. Please go out and support the companies because they support me. And uh, I love doing what I'm doing and I'd like to continue to do what I'm doing. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the content enough to go out and spend some money on on my sponsors. <laughs> uh, I'm going nowhere. It's Friday. My brain's worn out. So bear with me. We're almost done here. So a huge shout out to Bighorn Outfitters, Lone Wolf, Exodus Trail Cameras, Ozonics, Yearhead Archery, Wasp Archery, Exodus Trail Cameras, I already said that, Ripcord Arrowrest, Deer Lab we've mentioned today, and I think that's it. Please go uh, check those guys out. Also, go sign up to become a member of the National Deer Alliance. Go sign up to become a member of the National Deer Alliance. Go sign up to be a member of the National Deer Alliance. Please, it's free. You'll become educated, and uh, it's just better uh, for the sportsmen to be educated in uh, the game that they chase. So there's that. And, guys, hunting season drawing close, and I say this all the time. I love beating dead horses with a giant stick. If you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good weekend.